Khotin, I wanted to thank, firstly, Rabbi Schwartz for being so immediate and open to having this Askara this evening. So I'd like to call upon Rabbi Schwartz, the more Datra of Congregation Oisedek, to give Tivre Ticha. Both the Choshev Rabbonim, the time like this, Think of a pasuk sha'ala vicha v'yagedcha zekeinecha v'yamrulach. Our zikaron, our memory is jarred at such a time. We think when such a, an extraordinary person passes from this world. Many of us are thinking of an extraordinary shir we heard. Perhaps the first time we met Ravaren Lichtenstein. I turn back to the year 1969 in third grade in Gverat Shisha's class at Yeshiva Soloveitchik. We were told that day that a very famous rabbi was going to teach us, was going to talk to us that day. We were prepared. We went over the, uh, the Rashi's. We went over some uh, some of the recent Pesukim we were learning, some of the Parshas we were learning. And we were up to Parshas Koldos at the time. The rabbi who was interviewing us made such an impression that 45 plus years later, I still remember it. He spoke about parenting. He spoke about siblings. He spoke about brotherhood, about blindness. Specifically remember that. He spoke about the dichotomy between Yaakov and Esav. He educed the information from us, from a bunch of eight-year-olds. He then asked if anyone can recite all of the parshios from the beginning of the Torah until the one we were learning. And I thought I remembered them, but before I had a chance to raise my hand, my best friend sitting right to my right, raised his hand first, came to the front of the room and proceeded to recite all of the parshios from Bereshis until the Zosah Bracha. And I'm not sure if even anyone in the room knew that Moshe Lichtenstein, who was reciting those parshios, was the son of the man who was giving us that far hair that day. We were best friends from first grade to fourth grade, and I remember he always used to say, it's show and tell, tomorrow I'm going to Boston. Tomorrow I'm going to Boston for Shabbos. We didn't know where he was going. He never told us that the school, Yeshiva Rabbi Moses Soloveitchik, was named after someone that he was named after. <laughs> it's characteristic anivus on the same level as their greatness. We're learning these weeks in the Torah about Tuma and Tahara. Tuma bespeaks that which is closed. It's a tome. It is stopped up. Its opposite is Tahara because it is, it's everlasting. It's open. Yiras Hashem Tahora Omedis Lo'ad. Tahara is flowing. Ravaran Lichtenstein taught us that day that when Esav came back from the field, he had heard that Avram Avinu had passed away and responded adversely. Zaidi just died. We're all going to die. I see death in the field all the time. What do I need? A birthright. He saw the color red that day. And to him, red was the color of death. And we are baffled by death. But that's okay. The ancients were preoccupied with trying to solve death and overcome death. The Torah tells us to purify death 
with the color red also, with a mitzvah that is as baffling as death itself. These things, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein was teaching to eight-year-olds at Yeshiva Soloveitchik. So death makes no sense to us either, but we will purify it. We'll purify it this evening with a number of recollections from some of his main Talmidim. He passed away Batahara in purity. His teachings and his Torah suffused with Yiras Shamayim, and they are Omedes Lo'ad, like Tahara itself. We do not try to solve death like the pagans. We make our peace with it. We have divrei nichumim until bila hamavas Until then, we console ourselves with these words from Talmidim. I call back Rabbi Kelman to uh, explain where the proceedings will go from here. very much, Rabbi Schwartz. As Rabbi Schwartz mentioned, we do not understand death. It makes no sense to us, and obviously there's no good time for it. However, the exact time that we find ourselves in right now, and the day we find ourselves, I think is symbolic and appropriate for the, the wonderful, the great, the garden of the scenes itself, of whom we're commemorating this evening. We're right now literally in Venashmasha, a time when the sun has descended, but it's not yet complete darkness. And in a sense, this is what we're feeling right now, as you recall, of arm, of Lichtenstein's itself, the great sun has descended. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, as Mara tells us, was the sun, but we know that there is the Yareach, we know that his incredible feats and the Talmudim that he has left makes sure that we will not be in darkness, even if we are feeling that right now, those who knew him feeling a real availus the last few days, the sudden shock of hearing of this terrible news. And it's also, as we know, Yom Ma'ut. it's actually night now beginning at ER. we moved it up this year a day, and one of the things that sometimes can get lost with Rav Lichtenstein, with all of his greatness, all of his Talmud Torah, his incredible midot, was his incredible love for Eretz Yisrael. It's one very brief vignette, the time when I was a Talmud, a student at Yeshiva Haratzion. There was a time where Rav Lichtenstein felt that some of us perhaps didn't appreciate the greatness of Eretz Yisrael, of Medina Yisrael, the wonder, the, the Nisi. And he brought us all together the entire Mahsor, all of us, some 60 or so students, and he actually began by saying he normally does not speak in English, Shita, speak in Hebrew, of course, but he wanted to make sure we completely understood what, we, what he was going to say. And without obviously repeating everything, the point he made to us, he, he called to us Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, after 22 years of thinking his son, his beloved Yosef, was dead, he finally finds out that he's alive. You would think the first intuition is to immediately drop everything, run off to Mitzrayim. And yet the Torah reminds us that Yaakov goes to sleep in Marat Alayla, and the Kaddish Baruch who comes to him, he says, Al-Tiramir Dam Mitzrayim. The Kaddish Baruch who has to reassure him, as Rashi points out to us, that he was made tsar. He felt troubled that he had to leave, that he was niskak to leave for Chutz Laaretz. And he said, that's the sense we have to feel. 
in terms of our love for Eretz Yisrael, that if we ever have to leave it, to, to be made sorrow for it, to appreciate the beauty of Eretz Yisrael. And as we stand here, Ben Ashmashot of Yom Atzma'ut, we recall also the tremendous love that he had for Eretz Yisrael and that he imparted to so many thousands and thousands of students who made Aliyah, those who haven't yet made Aliyah. And just to return to the theme of the Yareach, as I mentioned, uh, many, many different Yerachim, many different thousands of Yerachim that Rav Lichtenstein has left us. We're going to hear from a number of the top, I would say, Yerachim tonight that will give us solace. We'll hear from Rabbi Blav, Rabbi Helfbach, Rabbi Nadi Helfbach, Rabbi Dr. Berger, and Rabbi Bizi Scheinfeld. But to begin, I want to call upon Andrew Bordach, who is a Talmud, not a rabbi, which is the majority, of course, of the students, and perhaps that's his greatest impact. People who are not necessarily going to play Kodesh, although we know he inspired so many people to go into that. Andrew was a Talmud, served for many years on the board, and is now the president of the Edson Foundation. Allow me to express my gratitude to Rabbi Schwartz and the Congregation of Tzedek for hosting this Saskara on such no- short notice, and to Rabbi Mori Kalman for helping organize it. Someone, as Rabbi Kalman just pointed out, who does not have smicha and who did not go into chinuch, I'm not one of the likely, most likely people to be speaking this evening. Yet, as with many of Ravarn's Talmidim, we're simply balabatim, and I mean that in the finest sense of the phrase as profoundly shaped and impacted by Ravaran. While others here tonight surely had a closer relationship with Ravaran, whether as Talmudian or personally, please allow me to share a few thoughts, which while perhaps not the most eloquent, are certainly heartfelt. As I sat in the Shiva's Beit Midrash two days ago for Ravaran's Zavaya, I was struck by the contrast with the events of just a year ago. I sat then in the Beit Midrash, just days before Yom Atzma'ut, for a ceremony celebrating Rav Aaron's receipt of the Pras Yisrael. There was a tangible feeling of joy and excitement in the air as we danced with Rav Aaron around the Beit Midrash in recognition of this well-deserved acknowledgement of his contribution to Israeli society. Now, just a year later, I sat in that same Beit Midrash, but this time tears were streaming down the faces of those in attendance and the sounds of sobbing filled the room, reflecting the deep and profound loss we are all feeling. Is a loss felt on at least three levels. The loss for an individual family, the loss for our yeshiva, the loss for Klau Yisrael. The loss for a family, of a husband, a father, a grandfather, for an extended family. The deeply moving espading delivered by each of the six children of Ravaran expressed most clearly the loss experienced by the Lichtenstein family. It was perhaps best summarized by Rav Gigi, Recall that when Ravarn was asked a few years ago about his greatest accomplishment, he did not respond, as many might have expected, the yeshiva and all that it represents. Rather, he answered that his greatest accomplishment was his family. What a forceful lesson for all of us, often so involved in our busy professional lives and with communal responsibilities, that our family lives must take precedence. The loss for our yeshiva, Ravarn was a partner with Rav Amitaz Atzal for nearly 40 years in building our yeshiva into one of today's preeminent Torah institutions. For many of us assembled here tonight, 
We had the zechut to learn at Yeshiva Taratzion under Rav Aaron's leadership. It provided a platform for our intellectual, spiritual, and personal growth. No doubt that it was his lamdut that shined through. His brilliant analytic capabilities displayed in his regular shiurim, as well as his three-plus-hour shirei klali, in which the brisker derech was keenly highlight, highlighted and taught. Indeed, indeed, he was not only a master par excellence of the brisker derech, he was a master teacher of it and its methodology. But his personal example of engaging in serious Tamil Torah is only one example of his intensity of purpose. Anyone who saw Ravar and Davin, or heard him call out the kolot for blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, or watched him nearly sprint across from one cheer to another carrying a heavy load of sfarim, cannot be but moved by his intense focus. Perhaps most often noted was his, was his deep humility. I recall being deeply impressed as a Talmud in the yeshiva as I observed the seriousness with which he took the mitzvah of kiburav. As illustrated on the Yomim Narayim, when Ravaran would speak each word of the davening into his father's ear, since at that point his father was blind and very hard of hearing. Or as he caringly helped his father step by step enter and exit the Beit Midrash. It's humility, I further recall a Talmud once asking Ravaran what Harav thought of a particular matter. The student was simply speaking to Ravarn in the third person. Ravarn assumed that the Talmud was speaking of the Rav, of Salvechik Without any false modesty, Ravarn simply did not perceive himself in this way, and even if we all certainly saw his greatness. Perhaps most importantly, in speaking of the lost far yeshiva, it is important to note the critical, nearly unparalleled decision that Ravamitan and Ravarn made to ensure the legacy of the yeshiva remains strong for years into the future. I refer, I refer, of course, to their foresight in appointing several years ago the next generation of Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Gigi, Rav Meidan, and Rav Moshe Lechtenstein. So often we see leaders unwilling or unable to act to protect the future out of fear of giving up their own par- power and authority. Not so in the case of Rav Aaron, whose actions ensured that while his death is a severe loss, the Yeshiva remains in safe and steady hands to carry on its mission to teach each of its Talmudim to be B'nai Torah, to engage in serious Talmud Torah, to work for the betterment of Klai Yisrael, to be actively involved in broader society with an appreciation of the fact that Torah has something meaningful to say about the modern world and its, and its challenges, to recognize the centrality of Eretz Yisrael, to be a Gomel Chesed. In each of these instances, to do so with a proper degree of humility, menschlichkeit, and Yerat Hashem, and third, Ravarn's death is a gloss for Kali Yisrael. He was the preeminent leader within our broader community, both in the U.S. and elsewhere in the diaspora, as well as in Israel. In Israel, over 10,000 people came to Levi on Tuesday. Tonight we have this gathering here, and another one shortly in Toronto. Ravarn's impact on our, compu- our, on our community was deep and profound. Ravarn's voice, both in the written and spoken word, was filled with passion and conveyed with clarity the complexities and important matters of the day, the role of religious Zionism, the value of Tezter, the interplay of ethics and halakha, the complete disavow and repudiation of violent Jewish extremism, the value, in the words of Matthew Arnold, of the best that has been thought and said in the world, that is, of secular culture, to help us grapple with the universal and eternal questions of human existence, the sensitivity to sensitively addressing difficult 
issue of dealing with non-Orthodox Jews, the consideration of how to strike the appropriate balance between competing interests in developing the personality of a Ben Torah, and the list goes on and on. Let me close with two final thoughts. I recall some Chatzarah some 25 years ago in the yeshiva. Rav Amitav was leading us and singing multiple rounds of Yivdot Hashem B'Simcha. At some point, Rav Aron quieted everyone down and began singing again, but with one critical change. Rather than B'Simcha, he sang Yivdot Hashem B'Yira. This was not a critique of Rav Amitav, Rather, it was a singular lesson for all of us there, that at all times we must strive to be of De Hashem. And yet there are different ways in working towards this goal. We must be cognizant of the different approaches and work toward finding the right balance. As Rav Bitt, a Talmud of Rav Aaron for 50 years, stated in his Hespit on Tuesday, first and foremost, Rav Aaron was an Evid Hashem. And it is this that he set an example for us that remains an eternal legacy for all of us. Finally, yesterday, when I visited the Lichtenstein family, as they sat Shiva in Alon Shvot, Rav Moshe specifically requested that I express the entire family's Hakarata Tov, their deeply felt gratitude to everyone here this evening. Although we are at a physical distance from the Lichtenstein family, our support for them is keenly felt by them and is a great comfort and a chama to them. As Dr. Tova Lichtenstein said to me, our presence here is reflective of the deep outpouring of our love for Avaran and is very much appreciated by the family. Thank you, Andrew. As you can hear from his voice, he's had an exhausting few days. Rabbi Bezi Scheinfeld also just came back. I noticed uh, Ellie Berman and Karen Nevetsky, maybe other people, close to me, Rabbi Lichtenstein, who also just came back from the Levi Antipay Shiva call. I'm going to keep my introduction short so that we have more time to hear from our very insightful speakers tonight. Our first speaker will be Rabbi Yosef Lau, who's going to focus on the relationship each had with Rav Lichtenstein. Rav Lau has known Rav Lichtenstein for many, many years since his student days at Yeshiva University. He spent some time in Rav Aaron's Kolel. They were together for a number of years in the Rav Shir. His children, his sons have learned with Rav Lichtenstein, and he's a longtime friend, so it's a tremendous pleasure and school to have. Rabbi Yosef Lau, Mishkiyach of Yeshiva University, addresses this evening. Whatever I'm going to say will be incomplete by definition but somewhat conscious, because I don't want to take advantage of being the first masbid of the evening. After all, when different masbidim speak about an individual, they're talking about the same person. There inevitably is going to be overlap. The Gemara in Sota, the Teslav Amid Aleph, on the Pasuk Ord, Zarul at Sadiq Lishrelei Simcha says that Sadikim Ora and Lishorim Simcha. And there's a machlokas we've shown him. Couldn't be. Putting a bar and already get away with quite a one. Shita. Rashi says 
that the Asharim, the people who are straight, are on a higher level than Sadiqim. And that's why they're the second part of the Pasuk. And Simcha is to be seen as more expansive than Or than light. The Rashbat says the opposite. That Simcha is external and light is internal, reflecting Alam Haba. In any event, Ravaron Zatzal was a tzaddik and a yasha. Both appellations applied completely. And in the very specific understanding of yasha, of the introduction to Sefer Bereshis of the Nitziv and the Hamik Dabar, which is referred to as Sefer Hayasha, and says Yeshorim refers to the Avos, Avram, Yisuf, and Yaakov because of how they behaved with the non-Jewish world around them. To use our terminology, their humaneness, their humanity, which was such a critical part of who Rabaran was. The stories of Rabaran's Anivus are in every newspaper and in the social me- media. I think there's perhaps not a single town that didn't see at some point an expression of uh, Aaron's apparent lack of awareness of his own greatness, how, how he saw himself as, in the famous stories of his answering the, the payphones in Gush, Eric, like anybody else, they have more stories than I am. You'll hear some, I assume, from the Talmudim, and as I said, they're all over the social media. I learned a great lesson in one of the first times that I actually got to meet Rabbah. When I came to Yeshiva in 1955, Rabbah was still in Harvard getting his doctorate, but he was a legend. We all knew about him from one place or another. I knew him somewhat because his sister, Hadassah, kind of was one of the leaders of Ne'akiva, and she would refer to her brother, who didn't have to go to Ne'akiva because he was, they didn't learn all the time. So why should we waste his time? There was a night a year later, and we were learning Masechka, Baba Basra, where there are many famous interpretations of the Ketzos HaChoshe, a well-known, very lumpish Achra. And in particular, in one Sukhya, which was very complicated, associated with the word Chardon, mustard seed, but it's just a word for the Sukhya, it's a very long and dense ktsos in which he goes over a number of approaches to the sukhya in different Rishonim with great analysis. And I de- decided I'm going to finish that ktsos that night. 
I'm going to stay up as long as it took until I finished it. Finally, a little after 1.30 in the morning, either I did finish it or I was too tired to continue, and I closed the Ketos walked out of the base medrash, and there was Rabaran sitting in the corner, learning as he was doing every other night. There's an incredible lesson here, because everybody knew how brilliant he was. The lesson is not just how much of a masmid Rabban was then and remained his entire life, but it's a lesson for all the bright young kids, all the people who are brilliant. They should never think that brilliance by itself will maintain be maintained. It's only that which is followed up and deepened by intense hasmada, by continuing to learn all the time, never relying on the brilliance or even his extraordinary memory. All of us in the Rav Shir uh, have them, over those years, have the memory of the Rav giving out Marimakomos for the next week, Shear, and listening in them, because to the Rav there were a number of other Gemaras that were always relevant to when we were studying, and he would say the Gemara, the Daf, and the Amid, and then from the back of the room, Rabarin would correct him, and it was always one Daf earlier, or one Daf later, and the Rav assumed, of course, the Rabarin was right. I want to make reference to one of the many articles that has appeared because it really struck me. It came out this morning. It's in Jewish Week online, but too late for the paper. And it was picked up by a mosaic. It was written by a former student in Haritzion, Haritzion, the name Chaim Seyman, who is now a professor of law at Villanova Law School. And the background for this article, because we exchanged emails this morning, was it was Monday morning, he found out about the passing of Rabar. He was thrown. And at 9.30 he had to go in to give a class on contracts. And he wasn't really prepared. And he said, this is a Catholic law school. There's not a single Jew in my class. And yet I feel compelled to say something about my Rebbe that would be relevant to them. So in this article he talks about moderation. Not the moderation of people who are lukewarm or are, don't have very strong feelings and therefore willing to compromise with the moderation of Rabaran. Rabaran is always called the moderate. Rabaran had extremely strong, passionate feelings. But at the same time, he always recognized that there was another perspective. His moderation was not because he was wishy-washy, 
was because he could never say this one perspective is the only way to look at it. And since he had to balance, using his favorite word dialectic, one principle with the other, he ended up being a moderate. And as he pointed out to me, he could explain that without any reference to anything Jewish whatsoever. Rabarin introduced to the world, the religious Zionist world in Israel, Limrat Torah and the methodology of risk. Even in the Moyeshivisha circles, up until today, Brisk has many more Americans studying than have Israelis. It's not the way Israelis have been trained to learn. But Rabban was very different from the Rav, and I don't have time to go into details. With the Rav, all we saw was this incredible creativity, brilliance, is in trying to involve us in the process of re-examining the sugya of coming to the essential issues in new ways with the Rav famously coming back, changing his opinions and rethinking things. Ravan relearned every sugya over again. But he often came to the same conclusions. Rabarin's great strength was methodological. It was incredibly thorough, organized. He brought to bear every Rishon that anyone knew about and many that most of the Shia had never heard of. Our youngest son, when he, uh, after learning in Gush for a couple of years. I was in the BAMA program at Revel, and he took the class with Chaim Professor Chaim Salvechik on Rishonim. And I said, how is it going? He said, well, all the Rishonim, the Chachmei Ashkenaz, the Rav and the Ravon, that Chaim is introducing to everybody else in the class, I've been hearing Shurim about for years. It's, to Rabbaran, it's all part of the learning process. At the same time, and seamlessly, all integrated together, Rabbaran incorporated his knowledge of literature, sometimes quoting things in Shir that the Israelis had never heard about, didn't know what names meant that he was using, but Rabban wasn't showing off. To Rabban, it was all relevant and therefore had to be brought in. But it wasn't, he liked reading books. All kinds of literature is fine. He had an approach to literature. Uh, he had a, his Rebbe in literature, Douglas Bush. I remember being at the wedding and seeing Rabaran dancing with Douglas Bush at his wedding with a certain approach to literature. Literature was meant to clarify, to deepen our understanding of the human condition. 
And literature to Rabban is what gave us a proper sense of human beings. Rabban was a true religious humanist. Rabban is famous for, and I see Baruch Shem a number of women in this room, for his extraordinary contribution to Tamatara for women. And frankly, the combination of Ravarin's commitment to Tamatora as the essential expression of Jewish life in Klaustro Kaddish Baruch Hu, and his humanism made his commitment to women learning Torah almost automatic. Women are human. Women have, Jewish women have a right to get close to a Kaddish Baruch. In one of his articles, Rabbi Baron says the obligation, the responsibility to learn Torah, even for women, which is not always clear and controversial in circles, stems from the mitzvah of Avas Hashem. The mitzvah of loving HaKadosh Baruch Hu requires us to try to understand HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we do that through Talmud Torah. No one ever said the mitzvah of Hashem is the mitzvah Seisha's man grammar that only applies to men. It doesn't apply to women. I want to conclude by talking about the incredible decision that Rabbaran and Tibad Mechayim, his wife Tova, made in leaving America and going to Israel. Everybody in Yeshiva knew that it was just a matter of time, it may have been a long matter of time, but Rabbaran was the future. Yeshiva was filled with incredible Tamlichachamim but Europeans from the world that no longer could reproduce itself. Who is going to be the American successor? Rabaran already in a few years that he was saying Shear had a gigantic Shear. Some of the outstanding Tamicha Chomet of that era till today describe themselves as Tamidim of Rabaran. And he left. He left all of this. An American jury at Yeshiva University and certain, certainly modern or centrist orthodoxy is farther poorer for it. And he went to Israel. And not only did he go to Israel, when he came to Yeshiva Taratzion, it was a few shacks there were less boys in the yeshiva than there were in his shear in YU. And he wasn't going to even be the entire, the single Rosh Hashiva. He was going to be a co-Rosh Hashiva. Incredible. So one would have imagined, oh, Rabarin was, you know, the model of the religious Zionist after the Six-Day War, the mood of the time, Reshit's Michat Gulatenu, 
the messianism that raised Rabban wasn't that in the slightest. Rabban in 1968 already spoke about the concerns that the great victory of the Six-Day War would lead to militarism and it's going to lead us to messianic dreams without the proper foundation and it could be dangerous. No, Rabbi Aaron loved Eretz Yisrael. And he felt it was the future of the Jewish people and he had to go. And it was not an easy then and it didn't remain easy. After all, Rabbi Aaron's way of learning Torah, Rabbi Aaron's knowledge of English literature, his religious humanism is coming from the base medrash of the Rav, from the learning with Rav Hutton and Rabban Soloveitchik, was foreign to Israeli religious Zionist community. And it's foreign to much of that community even today, who reluctantly acknowledge what a guard he was, but they didn't understand him. His mentality was completely different. But that didn't matter. This was the right thing to do. And so the Torah he was going to teach. So Rabarin, we lost Rabarin. He came each year, gave Shurim at a drop of a hat, with the Rosh Hamidabrim, the called over of Rabbi Yehuda, as they say, the Tanoim. At the Orthodox Forum, if Rabbaran was there, everybody turned to Rabbaran no matter what the topic was. But he fundamentally taught his Talmudim, not just the Americans, but Israelis to much greater numbers in the Gush. Now, we think in terms of the Americans. I'm now at the point when I have an Israeli grandson in the Gush, so I don't think that way so quickly anymore. Though I feel so sad that my grandson won't be Zohar to learn with Rabbah. Doesn't mean he's transferring to any other Yeshiva, he still loves the Bush, but he's not going to have Rabbah. And Rabbah's influence in Israel came more slowly with controversies with people who didn't understand him at all, and yet. It is profound. The day after he passed away, the Jerusalem Post's editorial was all about Rivara and Lichtenstein. Jerusalem Post, granted, it's written in English, but it's an Israeli publication. It's not a religious paper, and it spoke about Rivara's legacy. Next must be Rabbi Nani Helfgott, was a very close colleague of Ravaran for more than 30 years. I know personally that he would, the first thing he would do when he would get to Israel, go directly to see Ravaran with Lipperstein. And he had the slut a little more than two weeks ago when he got off the plane in Israel. He went and he spent over an hour 
with Rabbi Lichtenstein. So it's a real honor and our sweat to hear from Rabbi Hofgott this evening. <coughs> I want to thank Maury again, Rabbi Kelman, for organizing this Askara. As we leave uh, Yom Ma'ut, I'm thinking of the Dvar Torah that Rav Lichtenstein was fond of repeating many, many times. He contrasted Minag Ashkenaz and Minag Sfarad. Minag Sfarad, they only uh, make a bracha on the first and the third posts, and not on the middle ones because it's considered that you already made a bracha. But Minag Ashkenaz is to make a bracha on each one, based on the safety, the tzalti, the alti, that even partial redemption is also redemption, and that we celebrate it. And even if we can't fully appreciate every element, and even if every element hasn't happened yet, we still make a bracha. Uh, this evening, obviously in the short amount of time, none of us can capture the entirety, the totality, the arbakosot of who Ravaran was, but... If we can say something partial, that's also will be our schut. And it's special to speak here. Rav Lichtenstein spoke in this pulpit many times uh, in the 90s. Uh, we often would bring him, when I lived here, we often would bring him to the west side. And right here, right here, Rav Aaron was the sandik of my son, Ephraim, who's here this evening, 13 years ago, right here on this podium. So it's very special to be here. The Gemara says about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, two interesting statements. One in the Gemara in Bab Basra, and it's in Avos to Rabbi Nassan, Perki Dalid. The Gemara says, Amru Allah wa Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Shlohiniach Mikra, Mishnah, Gemara, Halachot, Agadot, Tosefto, Diktukei Torah, Diktukei Sofrim. They say about, they said about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that there was nothing in the entire corpus of Torah liter- literature that he did not, not only know, but lo he didn't, it wasn't with him. He knew everything. And on the other hand, the Gemara Brachot says, That he was, Rabbi Yochum was the nicest person, the most decent person, the most human person that you could ever meet. And of course, Rabbi Yochum was the great leader of the Jewish people at a critical moment in Jewish history. Those are three aspects that I just want to mention, touch on this evening. Rav Aaron's Gadlut B'Torah, Rav Aaron as the, the person who had the human decency, the care, the honesty, the probity, the integrity, the humility that all of people have been speaking about, and his leadership, his third quality. In Torah study, of course, as many, so much as Rabbi Blau mentioned on the, uh, the people are writing about Rav Aaron had the entire corpus of the rabbinic literature. Not only he knew it, but he, he had it worked out. He had it, he niach. It was really, meniach um, bekufso, as the Gemara says. It was in his pocket. He had it analyzed, categorized. And of course, I think, when I think of Rav Aaron, I think of the statement of the Rambam at the beginning of the Perisha Mishnayos. The Rambam talks about his father's Rebbe, the Rimagash. And the Rambam says, If somebody looks at this person, you're amazed and overwhelmed by the quality of his learning. Rambam 
The Talmudic learning of this man amazes everyone who understands his words and the depth of his speculative spirit, so that it might almost be said of him that his equal has never existed. That's what the Rambam said about the Rimagash, and in our generation we could say about uh, Ravarn. In addition, of course, to his learning, his tremendous knowledge, understanding, as Rabbi Blau mentioned, his Hasmada. Just tell, you know, one story. I'm sure Rabbi Blau remembers it as well. Um, it was in the mid-80s. Ravarin was in NYU visiting visiting the Rav and giving the keynote. And there was a bomb scare in Morg, in the Morgenstern dorm, in the middle of the night. So it was two in the morning, and all of us, you know, we were in our shorts, we were in pajamas. We ran out. It was cold. And... Ravan runs out, he's still in his suit and tie. He'd been learning, he was sitting learning, writing an article or something. And we're waiting around, and the bo- some of the boys went over and said, Rebbe, would you give a shear? He said, okay, give me 20 minutes, got to prepare. Of course, he didn't need to prepare. He wanted to prepare. So he prepared, gave a shear for an hour and a half, three in the morning, because he couldn't give a shear that was less than an hour and a half in those days. <laughs> that was the type of hasmada, and of course... Many of us remember that, you know, after Tisha B'Av or after Yom Kippur, just like in Valajan, he wouldn't go and run to eat like all of us. He would sit and learn because that's what he missed the most. And that's what the world, at that point, someone should be learning, even after Yom Kippur. Ravarin, of course, was the model of human decency and morality that we all looked up to. Rav Chaim, uh, Chaimi Navon has a quote uh, on one of those um, social media, one of the things they put out many years ago, English, or maybe two years ago, it says, I can't imagine that there were still people like that in the world. The level of, of, of decency, of honesty, of concern, of always, when he got a tramp, not wanting to sit in the front, always the couple should be together because that's the way life, normal life is supposed to be. As Rabbi Blau mentioned about the amount of care, of taking care of his family, I remember, again, just a personal story. I was in Gross in 1987. I went on a date in Tel Aviv. I didn't have a car. I had a car then. <laughs> Came back on the bus. Ravara got on the bus. And the bus was a little crowded, so I stood up. He gave me a death stare. <laughs> what are you doing? He said, hey, you have a seat? Sit, I'll stand. You know, Mamish, uh, it was... Uh, those kinds of things always remain etched in your life. And of course, the balance about human decency, a number of years ago, when he was still in the Tokfo, a number of us who were in Chinuch, we uh, approached him if he, we could meet, and we met and we discussed issues. And uh, I asked, I said, you know, I was a young uh, parent at that time, I had little kids, and I always felt very uh, guilty. You know, I guess it's part of what you feel as a parent. You know, you're not a good parent. But one of the things I was guilty about was I didn't go to Minyan enough. Because in yeshiva, what are you taught? You have to go to Minyan, Minyan, feel the tzibur. And I wasn't going to Minyan because my wife needed help. Because the kids were, you know. And, and he said, Natty, I want to tell you, from 1963 to 1966, I missed Minyan a lot. We had, we had three kids under the age of five. And you know what it took to get a kid ready to get, you know, you put on this and you put on that, to go, that's, of course, you're with your, you're with your wife and 
But then he went into the whole thing is minion of field and sibur, or, you know, a chiyuv. It's not a chiyuv, of course, it's, which, you know, which I had heard the shear before. But it was very, it was, it, was, it was beautiful to see and to hear. And of course, leadership, as Rabbi Blau mentioned, the third aspect, the leadership of the modern Orthodox community. And you know, I was thinking about what you said, and also when I was younger, I also thought, oh, how terrible it was that he left America, or left us, you know. But on, on, you know, on the flip side, I think in certain ways he maybe even had more of an impact, because he had such an impact on Israel, and at the same time, in many ways, on America as well. And I don't know, you know, the hist- history will still judge what, what the ultimate impact is. Leadership of the modern Orthodox community, the religious Zionist community, Torah Mata, interaction with the world, women's learning, questions of Giyur, questions in Russia, moral lacuna in the state of Israel, the Rabin assassination, Sabra, Shatila, all these things that he was such a voice. <coughs> Ravaran, in after the Rav was no longer uh, active, and was not able to be approached, Rav Aaron got very close to Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, Zatzal, in Israel. And he often would repeat, repeat something Rav Shlomo Zalman said about Rav Zalman Meltzer. Rav Shlomo Zalman would say about Rav Zalman Meltzer that even if he had not been such a gone, he would have been the Shein Yid in Yerushalayim, the most special, beautiful Jew in all of Jerusalem. And of course, the same can be said about, Rav Aaron said it about Rav Shlomo Zalman. And as we look back, we say the same thing about Rav Aaron. And in his final words about Rav Shlomo Zalman in the published essay he wrote, Rav Aaron wrote, And yet what is left with us and what we shall so, so sorely miss is the memory of a remarkable Gadol at once overawing and benign who bestrode us like a colossus and yet related to us great and small at the core of our most inner being. And what more can you say as well about Ravana? He's a pro Thank you very much, Rabbi Helfgott. Just want to permit me for half a second, Rabbi Helfgott, reminding me just another a personal story with your story about the bus, and Ellie Berman can verify this. After our second year in Yeshiva, we are four of us. We're on our way to Europe, on the way back to... Uh, North America, and who was on the plane, but Rav Lichtenstein and his wife, and um, just, uh, they were giving out the papers, and they came to, there was one paper left, and Rav Lichtenstein went to get it, and, and one of the students, one of the people on the plane went to get it, and Rav Lichtenstein said, no, it's your paper, he wouldn't take it, and their friend, of course, couldn't read it, he just sat there, he couldn't read the paper, because, uh, <laughs> That was, that was his humanity, exactly, just incredible and nevis. Our third speaker, our third masfid, is Rabbi Dr. David Berger. Um, you know, all our speakers, of course, have a tremendous merit, as I said, but I'm just going to focus on the connection to the witnessing. Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Berger goes back also, like Rabbi Blau, many, many years, perhaps. I mentioned Rabbi Blau, and I called him the Talmud Chaber, and his response was, it's difficult for anybody to really be on the level of a Chaber with Rav Lichtenstein, obviously not in terms of his closeness, but to feel somewhat an equality. Rav Berger goes back many years as a, perhaps a Tamit Chaber, 
Um, not only did his two sons study in Gershetzion for a number of years, his, since his daughter couldn't, she married Ellie Berman, uh, who, who studied there herself for three years, and his grandson, Ellie and Miriam's son, studied there also for two years. Ray Berger has uh, goes back a long time, discussed many issues with Aflissenstein, so again, it's a tremendous source to have uh, Dr. Berger address us. All the speakers have mentioned uh, Lichtenstein's uh, novel, uh, and uh, I hope that uh, what I'm going to say now is not going to be misunderstood as an effort to express Anova, uh, but to be called a Talmud Chover of Rav Lichtenstein is something I have to deny just in the interest of elementary truth and decency. Uh, that's a madrega that I, uh, I really can't aspire to uh, by, a, by a very wide margin, but I do appreciate the comment anyway. We would all like to believe that genuine mastery of Torah on the part of a believing Jew automatically brings with it a status of supreme righteousness. This certainly should be the case, and most of the time it probably is. Nonetheless, in a Jewish world of contentiousness, of ideological friction, of access to every position and even every casual comment regarding matters of the day issued by Talmidei Chachamim, this conviction can be sorely tested. Uh, at their cynical worst, some Jews, especially modern Orthodox Jews, wonder if the coexistence of mastery of Torah and supreme righteousness is a realistic expectation. Ravara Nathanstein reinforced our faith in the ethical power of Torah. His control of the corpus of the written and oral Torah approached the absolute, and he personified integrity, concern for others, genuine, almost startling humility, as you've heard, everything that the word tzaddik conveys. The combination of encyclopedic knowledge and humility uh, is illustrated among many other uh, stories, and one that I was told many years ago about his attitude towards setting aside some time for the rapid study of Gemara in order to gain familiarity with a broad range of material. He opposed such a so-called seder in Bikius, which he characterized as studying so as not to understand. Uh, all study, he believed, should be be'iyun, with deep analysis and attention to detail. When some students objected with the argument that they wanted to gain a broad knowledge of the Talmud, he reportedly replied, so study the entire Talmud Be'iyun. I did it. Uh, in his case, this response was not an affectation. The objectively risible assumption that anyone could do what he did was taken for granted, or at least it was not rejected out of hand. I formulated the meaning of tzitkus in terms that have concrete meaning, integrity, concern for others, humility. However, in addressing the persona of Rav Lichtenstein, I need to add a term that I hardly ever use because of its elusiveness and frequent application to approaches that disturb me. Spirituality. For all his embodiment of the learning associated with the ultra-intellectualized world of brisk, Anyone with even passing familiarity with Rav Lichtenstein encountered 
a figure suffused with the almost tangible presence of the creator of the universe. In a famous brief essay on faith that has just been reprinted, Rav Lichtenstein wrote that for him, quote, the greatest source of faith has been the Ribbon Shalom himself, unquote. And he went on to describe the intimate relationship that he so frequently experienced. It is a commonplace among his students, and this was mentioned, uh, and among his acquaintances, that to have seen Rav Lichtenstein davening Yom Kippur was to understand what prayer is. Uh, I saw this davening at NYU before he moved to Israel, and his status as an Isht Filah was underscored by his daughter at the funeral. <coughs> One of the most moving moments for me as I watched the video was her report of his reaction a year and a half ago when he was brought by ambulance to the hospital as death appeared to loom. He declared, Padisa si Hashem KLMS, thus simultaneously commending his soul to God and pleading for divine mercy. For the modern Orthodox community, Rav Lichtenstein, like the Rav, served as a model for Torah Omada, Torah and secular study or general culture. Unlike the Rav, Rav Lichtenstein also addressed the issue frontally, most notably in a lengthy essay in a volume in which I had the privilege uh, to participate. But like the Rav, he did not directly engage specific intellectual uh, challenges or difficulties that pursuit of secular disciplines can raise. His central approach, rather, underscored the ways in which such a pursuit can enrich the understanding and experience of Torah and faith. What spoke to him most was, of course, literature. Now, even though he was acutely conscious of the fact that many Torah scholars would look askance at his invocation of non-Jewish figures and presentations of aspects of the Jewish worldview, he did not shrink from doing so regularly uh, and unapologetically. I cannot vouch for the historicity of the following story, which comes in more than one form, but it is said that Rav Lichtenstein in a Torah discourse where Rav Ovadia Yosef was present made reference to Dostoevsky. When he sat down, Rav Ovadia purportedly turned to him and said, I thought I knew all the great authorities of the Ashkenazi. At a gush dinner where Rabbi Helfgott was uh, uh, the alumni honoree when he was a teacher and not yet a communal rabbi, Rav Lichtenstein said something that I imagine you remember, I, I remember it, uh, that would not have been said by a great rabbi at any comparable event in Jewish history outside possibly of Renaissance Italy. He said, as Aquinas said, teaching is the ideal synthesis of the active and contemplative life. <laughs> Rav Lichtenstein's openness to the value of outside culture and his innate sense of tolerance did not mean, and this we have also heard, that he was soft or even flexible when it came to issues that he saw as central to Judaism. He would not allow the expression of certain theological views in a volume of the Orthodox Forum. He firmly opposed the dominant forms of biblical criticism. And he was even critical of typical approaches to the academic study of Talmud uh, in which a significant number of religious Jews engaged. He once cited approvingly in a talk at YU the sardonic reaction of a listener who had heard a lecture delivered by a religious scholar utilizing such approaches. The Talmud says that for everything that God forbade, he permitted something similar. That listener reacted to the talk uh, 
by saying, Kol the Orsalon Rachmana, Sharalon Kivaseh. Osarlon Bikoris HaMikro, Sharalon Bikoris HaTalmud. For everything that God forbade, he permitted something similar. He forbade Bible criticism, he permitted Talmud criticism. Um, a, a, yes, Jacob Katz uh, said of our own, uh, was the one who said this. Uh, even in dealing with rigorously orthodox circles, Rav Lichtenstein did not allow his openness to varied approaches to blunt his expression of sharp criticism when he felt that principle required it. On the one hand, as we have just heard, he expressed unalloyed reverence for Rav Auerbach. On the other, Rav Lichtenstein's discourse on Das Torah in the sense of unalloyed rabbinic authority led him to affirm in vigorous terms that a public talk by Rav Shach at a politically critical moment was deeply misguided because of his lack of familiarity with Israeli realities in the secular community. Rav Lichtenstein was open, he was tolerant, but also firm and uncompromising. Assessing Rav Lichtenstein's impact requires some comparison with the giant who was his father-in-law and with the man who invited him to Yeshivat Haaretzion and served as his co-rosh yeshiva. The Rav was a figure for the ages, as both the Tamit Chacham and the philosopher. The main sentiment that he inspired was all. A select few individuals were genuinely close to him and were no doubt able to develop more intimate sentiments as well. Nonetheless, even for them, I think that what predominated was all. Rav Amital was an impressive Tamit Chacham, but in his case, the dominant response uh, inspired was love. Chazal tell us that as Hashem alokecha you must fear the Lord your God, includes Talmidei Chachamim, or better, is channeled through Talmidei Chachamim. But I think that uh, we would be justified in saying something similar about Hashem alokecha. You can learn to love God from the experience of loving Tamidei Chachamim. Rav Lichtenstein, who was a towering Tamid Chacham, and a figure who, for all his reserve, afforded a, some degree of access to his person and personality, inspired both awe and love, though perhaps at a, a slightly lesser level in each case than his teacher and his colleague, respectively. As to influence... The Rav's emerges out of the works of a world-class thinker and affects large numbers of Jews through his elite students and popularizations of his teachings and writings. Rav Lichtenstein's massive output and personal example made him a guide and mentor in a way that was more direct and I think even exceeds the everyday impact of the Rav, at least during the Rav's lifetime. To some degree, I'm reminded of what my father, who was, among other things, a folklorist, wrote in an article on folk tales about Rashi, published 22 years after a similar article about the Rambam. Legends about the Rambam, he said, reflect the Yirat Kavod, the awed reverence that people felt, that the Jewish people felt, toward a figure who inhabits the highest, largely inaccessible circles. Legends about Rashi reflect a degree of familiarity, a sense of greater comfort with a beloved father figure, 
and teacher of stellar character. Back in 1969, when Rav Lichtenstein was still at Yeshiva University, he unknowingly caused one of the sharpest and most amusing criticisms to which I was ever subjected by a student. I had just begun my teaching career, and I had to read a New Testament verse to my class. At the time, my only New Testament was part of an old, crumbling King James Bible lent to me by my father. When I took it out to read the verse, a student declared, quite audibly, his New Testament looks like Rav Lichtenstein's Rambam. <laughs> About 25 years later at a Gush dinner, I told this story to Rav Lichtenstein, who reacted with considerable amusement. I asked myself if I would have told a comparable story to the Rav, and my answer is an unequivocal no. <laughs> the day after Rav Lichtenstein's Petira, I was speaking with the Rabbi Blau, who remarked that people use the word irreplaceable loosely, but in this case, it is true. I replied that I had not asked of Lichtenstein many questions, but on several occasions, when there was more at stake than technical halacha, and the great authority with real das Torah was needed, I called him in Israel. On those occasions and many others, I wondered whom else I could have asked, and the agonizing answer was, no one. A similar comment was made to be by, by Professor Schneider Lyman after Rav Lichtenstein was consulted at our urging regarding a very sensitive decision that confronted the editors of the forthcoming RCA sitter. Our community is blessed with great Tamidei Chachamim. This is not to diminish their stature and the great honor that they are due. I have asked them questions and will, with the help of God, continue to do so. But sometimes cliches are indeed true. Losing the constellation of remarkable learning, broad horizons, profound judgment, exemplary humanity, and closeness to God embodied by Rav Aaron Lichtenstein leaves us an orphaned generation. Uh, may his merit protect us. Thank you very much. Our last must-read of the evening is um, also a very close Talmi, Rabbi Ben-Sion Scheinfeld, who had this course to learn with Rebbein for three years, who learned with two of his sons, with Chavusa, with Rabbi Moshe and Rabbi Yitzhi. Lichtenstein had this course to not only know the Lichtensteins very well, but also his parents. He learned with Rebbein's father for a couple of years weekly when he was blind already, used to eat, Ben Bayit used to eat with the Lichtensteins every week, also just came back from the Bayit, so again, it's really big source for us to hear from such a close Talmud of Rebbein Lichtenstein. Thank you for the comment for arranging this. Um, it's difficult to be mastered in the, in the best of circumstances. To be following three such beautiful, um, powerful, thoughtful speakers, it's hard to know what to add. Um, forgive me if I repeat some of the themes. This Monday morning at about 6 a.m., I, I woke up. My brother texted me. I woke up with a text that the Luxentine was Nifta. 
He explained to me that there's one way I could get to the Levaya, one way I could get to the funeral. There's a flight leaving Newark Airport at 1.30, and that uh, perhaps I could get a seat on that flight. $2,000 and uh, 10 hours of being squished in a middle seat. The big guy. Being squished in the middle seat was pretty difficult. Um, I went to Levaya. Despite my deep relationships with the Lichtensteins and Lichten family, it would have been simpler to stay here and to perhaps see the Levaya um, on screen, on, online. But something compelled me to say that my life wouldn't be complete. Not my outer life, my inner life, the inner world that motivated my heart. It would not be complete unless I could go and take the opportunity to acknowledge the impact that Rebbe had on my very soul. In a life that was, hopefully our lives are built on a quest for truth, for spirituality, for Avas Hashem, my encounter with Rebbe forever altered that journey. It was altered then, and it never was the same. And I had to go there and tell Ravan, or at least be there to tell him, to try to tell him that the impact that he had. I got off the plane, and uh, Rodenswag and two of the very Hasha people from the Gush community were in a car together. We, we, we drove through the hills of uh, Gush Etzion, and as we got closer and closer, this urgency to be there, to see Rev. Aaron's, not Aaron, there's no Aaron in Israel, to see Aaron's talus clad body brought into the base medrash, and to be able to feel and say, this person had altered forever my inner journey. The urgency to do that grew and grew. And there was a gasp in the room when Rav Aaron's body, Talon's clad body, entered the room. To be honest with you, this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. I grew up in high school. I was a pretty in a modern Orthodox family, but my father came from Williamsburg. And uh, he went to Tells and he had Smicha from YU. And uh, I was a pretty serious high school student. And I was into learning, and I wanted to to become a serious Obed Hashem. And I felt this modern Orthodox world was okay, but that was the watered-down version of what was supposed to be happening in the world. I was going to get one year of Rav Lichtenstein and then get out and find the real depth of Torah in this black hat world that I uh, always admired and still, to this day, feel very close to and drawn to. But the, I never expected, no one ever warned me that by meeting Rav Lichtenstein, <coughs> my journey would never be the same. That I would never meet in any world, in modern Orthodox world or in Yeshiva's world, I would never meet a person who would ever impact my life and my avodas Hashem like Rav Lichtenstein. I had to go to this Leviah. And I had to tell 
Ravaran that the force of his personality and his truth forever changed my life. I want to convey in just a few minutes how I defined that force and how, uh, how it impacted. The Mesil Sisharim begins with the following statement, Yisoda chasidus v'shoresh ha'avoda, ha'tamima, hu shigisbarer v'yisamis etel ha'adam, ma'chovaso ba'olamo, ulamatsorech shiyasu ma'bato, umagamaso, b'chol asher hu amel kol yimei chayav. The foundation of saintliness and the root of perfection in the service of God lies in a man's coming to see clearly and to recognize as a truth the nature of his duty in this world and the end towards which he should direct his vision and aspiration in all of his labors, all the days of his life. If I had to say one midah about Rav Luxenstein, it was this ever-present recognition of Chovaso Ba'olamo, an unbelievable sense of mission in every single minute and second of his existence. One of the Masfid and one of the kids, one of his wonderful children, said that they never in, his, in their entire life saw the father waste one minute. And Rebuxin was always infused, as so many of the Masfid mentioned, with his hasmada of, of that religious goal, that religious goal that, again, perhaps one imagines in some the deep world of Eastern Europe, where I've listened every second, that line of Nesil Sishar, Machovaso Ba'olamo. We say in Hirpelos, in Lamarta Torah, Harbe Atachzik Tova Laatzmcha Kilakach Notzarta. Those words, Kilakach Notzarta, because that's why you were created. It infused every encounter with Avlechsenstein. His love of Torah was the focus of his entire life. It's funny, we call Rav Lichtenstein a modern Orthodox rabbi. And it's hard to... Uh, the term modern Orthodox has so many meanings, I don't want to get into any political trouble here, but sometimes it, it connotes a moderation. Uh, a compromise is one of the... Uh, Rabbana mentioned. Uh, Rav Lichtenstein was extreme. He was extreme in his focus. I've never... And I've met other Gedola Yisrael and been close to them. I've never met a person who has been so focused on their mission of Matarasa Olamo. And this, of course, was combined with the purity of heart. And somehow, in the religious field in particular, it's hard to know why, there's such um, personality need for personal um, acknowledgement and there's such complicated motivations. Uh, Tolstoy has a very beautiful short story called Father Sergius, about a priest who's spent his whole life in holiness, and then he sins at the end of his life, and then he's looking for somebody with a pure heart who he could go to, and he finds his, his cousin, they're all older now, and he finds her in the house, and the cousin says she's not a religious woman, but she says, stay here, I have to go out and do something... Uh, help this old lady down the block, I'll be back. And the cousin closes the door. And Tolstoy ends the story of Father Sergius with the following line. The priest reflected that he had been whole, that he has, he had lived his whole life for man, thinking 
he was living it for God. While his cousin had lived her whole life for God, thinking she was living it for man. But listening with a person who thought he was living his whole life for God and who lived his whole life for God, there was such purity of, of purpose. The humility, the purity of purpose was so unique. The stories have been mentioned. There's always apparently a lot of bus stories. So my bus story is that Blixley was on a bus and he had a seat. This is not where he's standing and you want to give him a seat. He had a, actually had a seat. And in the middle of the bus ride, he gets up and he says to the person, you paid the same amount for your ticket that I paid. I, I sat half the journey, now it's your turn. My bus rides are never the same anymore because of that. I can't enjoy my seat anymore. <laughs> and now in America, if you did that to somebody, they would think you're crazy, so they wouldn't even like to just call the police. It would be strange. But such purity of heart, such purity of spirit. Of course, the famous story no one mentioned is that Rabbi came before Pesach to do his, his um, Miloim. And he came to the army base, and uh, he was a Rav Tzvai, who was just supposed to be there to be Mashkiach, but he came clean-shaven, and... The, the rabbi was in Charlie the Yombeis had no idea who this clean-shaven man was. And instead of being a mashkiach and sitting around, he told him to go and clean the kitchen. And the Luxley spent the next two days cleaning the kitchen. And then the rabbi found out that he just told the girl Hador to go clean the t- kitchen. <laughs> Dr. Berger mentioned that uh, the words that Luxley said in the ambulance were so powerful. Out of all that spade and all the lines... That was the line I also was going to mention, where looking in the ambulance, said, mm-hmm. Such um, focus. And that was his life, such um, singular focus. And I must say that uh, by being at the Levaya, one of the overwhelming feelings after all that spade him was the following feeling. I have never been at a Levaya with Rav Lutzling's arm sitting there, wrapped in a talus, I've never been at a Levaya where I could say that somebody was going back to the Kizia completely fulfilling every tachos of every ability that a Kaddish Baruch gave them. And what we felt in that room, in that Levaya, what everybody felt was that we were giving back to Kaddish Baruch the purest carbon, the purest offering that could ever be given by a person whose whole life had no gava and no kas, and no ulterior motives, and only focus from <coughs> the day of birth with this <coughs> idea of a, a, a mission, a sense of mission, and a chryas to Hashem Yisbarach. Of course, the looks and scene wasn't only about devotion. It was amazing breath of knowledge, and speakers spoke so beautifully about the looks breath of knowledge and English literature and how it was about his humanism and the, the whole picture of, of, uh, of, a, of humanity that infused his whole life and I would have spoke more about it but it was so beautifully said already. I just um, wanted to mention a, a powerful moment in my life that again altered my, my journey forever. I came to Gush, we were, I, I was young, I was uh, I left in 11th grade, I was 16 years old. I was so focused on leaving our Torah. I just wanted to get Ruchsin Derek Halimba and get out. But um, we were learning Baba Basra, and Ruchsin used to put Marma um, Komos by the, by the little radiator to, to, to announce. So I, I got there, and, and everyone says that a quarter to one, Ruchsin is going to give a sikha. So we were learning a sugi in Baba Basra. I thought maybe he'd had an insight into the Tosfus or the Yad Ramah or, or something, uh, a Rajbam. So very excitedly, I'm, I'm sitting there and uh, Preparing and Rebuchsin gets up and he speaks about the Cambodian boat people. 
I, I never heard of the Cambodian boat people, actually. It was in Hebrew, I wasn't sure I heard of the Cambodian boat people. But someone, it was about the Cambodian boat people, and he said we have to collect money for the Cambodian boat people. I cannot tell you the shock to my soul of, of thinking my tachlis in this year is to figure out the Adraman Baba Basra, but to find out that I'm supposed to be worrying about the Cambodian boat people. And I sat with my chavusa at lunch afterwards, and we just said, we just felt that we had just been catapulted into a new world of what Torah concerns, of, of a vast array of spirituality that HaKadosh Baruch Hu demands of a Jew. And I don't know if I actually ever reconciled the intense hasmada that Rabbi Lichtenstein had with all of the social justice and how one's supposed to divide their time, but all I know is that that moment forever changed my goal of spirituality and what the world would bring. Um, another very famous sikhad that mentioned it also brought out this uh, unique um, view of Rabbi Lichtenstein. It was actually very relevant. We spoke about um, are you allowed to shave Erev Shabbos during, during the Omer? Very relevant. Halachic Shalaf is a, for, uh, um, so he gave a sicha, and are you allowed to shave? Are you not allowed to shave? And, uh, he gave a halachic shir. And then he gave a sicha, um, and Shalashudas, and he spoke about Pashas Emor. And he spoke about, because uh, some people are saying you're being mekil, you're telling people you're allowed to shave Erev Shabbos, how can you be mekil? Flat from some Bacham in the yeshiva. So Rav Lutzatin then went to David Sichan. He said the following. He says, Amor al-Kohen b'nei Aaron, l'nefesh lo'yitama ba'amav, ki'im l'shiro akarvilav. Right? Tell Kohanim they cannot be metame to Mason, except if their relative dies. And Rav asked, let me ask you, do you think that HaKadosh Baruch was being mekil in Hathas Tumah? When he said you're allowed to be metame for your father and your mother and your sister and your brother? Is that a kula? So that's not a kula. That's a chumrah. That is a chumrah in connection to parents. That is a, and Luxing pointed out that I was not mekil or machmir in the shir I gave yesterday about telling you you are or not allowed to shave. I simply was t- talking about a value. There's a value of kavod shabbos. There's a value of sir saomer, of the avelis. And it's not a kula and it's not a chumrah. It's just... And that perspective, that broadness of perspective, as was mentioned, just totally changed my world. What I thought was a kula could now be a chumrah. And the values and the complexity, it was beautiful and it was sincere and it was real and it was life and it was, it was life transforming, transformative. And that leads me, I'll end, I know it's late, with the following uh, reflection. When I, um, when I entered the yeshiva for the, for the hesped, I saw a world so many of the Talmidim had torn Kriya. And it was like I was standing there in a world of these very special, sincere, over the Hashem, who experienced just what I did. They experienced, they, they were serious people who wanted to get close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and they met Rav Lichtenstein, and his view, and his purity, and his analysis had forever transformed their journey. And their lives were there to look at this man and to tear Kriya because their Mabato Ba'olama, not only their Torah, but their view of everything sacred and how they viewed and felt the world was forever different. And it was a world of, 
I felt so special to be one of those Talmudim, to be sitting there, to be able to tear my, my shirt and say, this person, his view of life forever and ever transformed who we are and who I am. The Gemara says you should only learn Torah from someone who is Doma Lamalachi, Lamalachi Asharis. Rav Luxley was somebody who is Doma Lamalachi Asharis. He changed the people who he impacted. His complexity and spirituality is unparalleled. And uh, as he goes before the Kisiyah Kabul, with all the knowledge of the complexity of the issues of this day, I hope that HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows that this person is the best, the best job we will ever have of figuring out this world. And perhaps he'll be a Milit Yosher and uh, bring more clarity and, and maybe urge HaKadosh Baruch Hu to uh, give more clarity to our lives. Before we close, I just wanted to thank again Congregation Oetzedek, Rabbi Schwartz, for hosting this, also Yerusha Rosenberg for putting together the, the video for the evening. But most importantly, in this very difficult time, and it's a bailiff for, for many of us, so for such a gadol losing in loss with darkness around this, hearing the beautiful words tonight from our four, the incredible Masvidim, Really tell real Talmudim who really understood the message of Elifnissi, and hopefully that will inspire and noble us to continue really the incredible journey that he began of being an Obed Hashem, of being a servant of God, and that will continue to inspire us really on a daily basis. As we know, Tzadikim Bimitatam Kurunchayim, where Elifnissi lives, and so many different Talmudim, and may his legacy continue to grow for many, many, many years to come. He's a Baruch. We'll now Davin Mari, and that will just take a minute. Thank you again, everybody, for coming and getting covered.